everybody. Welcome to a special edition of Take the Black. I am Dan Selke, editor of WinnerIsComing.net, and I'm here with two luminaries of the audiobook world, Simon Vance and Scott Brick, who between the two of them, I was looking you guys up, um, have done, it has to be, I'm going to guess, thousands of audiobooks across the two of your careers, which is oh, extremely impressive. Mm-hmm. A couple of thousand, I'm sure. Somewhere A couple of thousand. Yeah. I mean, that's what I want to talk about first, because I mean, like, so you guys have been at the audiobook game for many years now, and I unwittingly have heard you, I didn't even know I heard you, I was listening to audiobooks over the years, I looked up like, oh, I've completely heard these two guys several times. Um, I think that it's a, it's, a, it's a really, really interesting, cool job, kind of professional audiobook narrator. But I'm, I'm not sure one people like immediately think of when thinking of career opportunities. So I was curious first, is that something like at, at what point in your careers did you go really hard in on the audiobooks? Was it something that you started out wanting to do or something that you just kind of came upon as you were pursuing maybe things like acting or radio stuff like that? Uh, Simon, why don't you kick it off? Oh, well, I am considerably older than Scott. So I um, <laughs> As a child, there were no audiobooks. I mean, Dylan Thomas recorded some of the recovery things. So it wasn't something I jumped out of bed and went, oh, you know what? I want to sit behind a microphone all day in a small box and talk to myself. Um, I guess the turnaround, I mean, I started in London when I was working for the BBC for part-time. I did it for charity. Um, I, I came over to the States um, nearly 30 years ago now, and I was going to be a full-time actor. Sure. So needed something to fill in when you're a full-time actor and you're not working full-time. So right. I, I could do audiobooks, and somebody introduced me to the commercial side of it. It was Blackstone Audiobooks in Ashland, Oregon. Uh, so I started with them. But in terms of the transition to realizing, I mean, it was the, the turn for me, the iPod, the introduction of the iPod or MP3s, which was 2001, 2002. I mean, up to that point, I've been doing a lot of books, um, but it wasn't like this is my job. Um, so I would say probably around 2005, I did make a decision, which I then went back on, to quit doing any acting on stage, I thought, you know, it's great. I just sit in my box. I don't have to deal with anybody, and I'll just record book. Uh, 2005, that was, uh, for me, the moment the, the, the industry had built up enough that I could make a full-time living doing what I'm doing. You know, there's so much more to the story, but uh, I need to share something with Scott, so let me... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, go ahead, Scott. How did you find, find this calling? I, I know I got started a couple of years after Simon, um, I started my, I did my very first one. I actually know the date. It was June 10th of 1999. And I remember because I, I, it was such a great experience. I went and I, I circled it in my date book and, uh, years later I dug it out and, <clears throat> um, been celebrating the anniversary ever since. Uh, <laughs> but it was around, it was around the same time. Um, and yeah, the MP3 player, uh, being able to listen to things, you know, in your pocket, basically, whether it was the iPod or, or on now on a phone, um, there was such a proliferation of audiobook work. And, you know, that was also, this is in the dawn of audible.com. And um, they really helped uh, uh, bolster the success of audiobooks as well, making them available to so many more people than they were before. And um, uh, it was around 2001, 2002, I was in a, a friend of mine, <clears throat> Dan Musselman. He's uh, um, one of the executive producers at uh, Penguin Random House. But at the time, it was a company called Books on Tape. Simon and I had both 
uh, uh, done a number of titles for books on tape. <clears throat> and I remember looking at his calendar because Comic Con was coming up, and I've been going every year, you know, since the late '80s. And and I went in there to like ask him for a couple of days off. Like I I really need like uh, like Wednesday night through the following you know Monday if I can. And he looked at me like I was a slow-witted child, and he said, um, "You're the boss. You know you don't work for me." <laughs> he was the one giving me the work, but I you know I'm not his employee. And I went, "Oh yeah, that's right. I am the boss." And holy crap, I'm doing this a lot. It was at that moment that I realized. It had gone from a thing, you know, where I would do maybe one a month, uh, maybe one every other week, to wow, this is a this is a career if I want it, and I did, and I do. So, yeah, it's very cool. I mean, like we've all kind of been around long enough to see the rise of audiobooks, and I mean, just thinking for myself, it does make me like you can read a lot more books if you just can like put one in your ear when you're on your commute or whatever. It really has opened up a whole new world. Hopefully. Of reading a lot more. I think it's a combination, as Simon mentioned, uh, you know, technology um, took off at the right time. But I think when you marry that with something that I think is innate in our culture, um, it was just a marriage made in heaven. It's the fact that we were read to as children and we miss it. I think, you know, you, you, the difference between juggling 10, 15, 20 cassette tapes in your car and actually just pressing a button. Made a big transition. Huge. I think the difference, one of the big differences between Scott and myself is that I started, uh, I tr I moved to San Francisco, that the Bay Area. The, there were no big studios doing audiobooks there. So I started working from home. And that's the way I've right. always worked. I do go in a couple of times. I've been into a few, when the book's big enough, they want a producer, a director in on it. I'll go into a studio. Um, but I know Scott worked with Penguin Random House and others in professional studios. And only recently, well, actually, I don't know about recently. It might be five years ago. You started your own home studio working from home. I put my home studio in in 2008. Um, um, we were talking earlier about the, uh, the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant. Um, when I started looking at the production costs, what it would cost me uh, um, to record it, have it edited, um, mastered and such, uh, hiring somebody else's studio, and then realizing I could just invest that money in my basement and create my own. It, yeah. uh, I, I did it to do that series, and I've done probably, I don't know, two or three hundred books in it since. Very cool. And obviously, it's useful right now when everyone's working from anyway. Yeah. That, I mean, that's the thing. Simon really was uh, ahead of this curve, um, uh, having had his home studio from the very beginning. I got dragged into it kicking and screaming because I really <laughs> didn't want a home studio. I didn't I didn't want the hassle of it. Other people are doing the work, uh, you know, handling all of that stuff, uh, the post for me. But uh, I have never been more grateful than when this all happened and realized, well, we were set up for this a decade ago. So thank God. Yeah, I had a great, great fortune, good fortune in timing. I, I'm in a building at the bottom of my garden, which I spent last year trying to get through permits. They finished it in February. I moved in in the second week of February. My wife teaches at UC Irvine. The middle of February, the end of February, she had to start teaching from home. So she took over the, the bedroom that I'd been in with my cubicle. Um, and it's great because I can be down here screaming and shouting and she can be up screaming. We don't disturb each other. And we, we really, it would have been so difficult to be working in the same house 
with Cynthia teaching her students online. So it's just things work. I I I I couldn't agree more. Uh, crazily enough, I, I I broke a bone about six weeks ago. Broke, I broke my collarbone, and I couldn't even dress myself. I couldn't feed my stuff, and so Suzanne, my uh, my girlfriend, who was a narrator as well, Suzanne Freeman, she basically moved in at that point to in order to just take care of me, take care of me full time. And thankfully, I had seriously just had my booth built an hour before I broke the collarbone. And the fact that she could bring all of her equipment over, and we now I now had two booths on opposite sides of the house. And again, we can be in here screaming and doing, carrying on whatever we need to do, and now that we're not interfering with each other's work. It's been a huge help. That's nuts. Um, well, let's talk about Dunabix. Where, you know, because we have a new book coming out, Scott Brick, The Duke of Caladan. And um, I wanted you to try to clear something from me first, because I was looking at all the Dune books that Audio Audible had published. And I noticed that the first, like the earliest ones, 2003, 2004, were uh, like the Legends of Dune books by um, Brian Herbert, Kevin J. Anderson, which came out before like the main Frank Herbert Dune. I was wondering, if, like, how did that happen? Like, how? Well, it's, it's actually interesting because uh, the timing of it was a little backward. Uh, Simon and I, uh, amazingly, have both had experience recording Dune as a solo read uh, many, many years before. But um, with the success of the prequels and sequels that Brian and Kevin have been writing, um, Macmillan, I, Simon, I want to say it was in 2007 uh, when they said, hey, guys, let's, let's get a big multicast thing, really make a, um, a production out of Frank's original six. Um, I've, so, got, um, I've got the uh, audio award on my shelf here, and I think it's 2005. 2005, okay. Earlier, earlier than, than I thought. Um, uh, but, but it was, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Show it off. I'll go, hang on. <laughs> yeah, so that's, they basically wanted to do something to honor Frank and his original six. And, um, they also knew um, it's the same publisher as uh, doing the sequels and prequels. Um, Frank died while um, plotting out Dune 7. And Dune 6, his last one, Chapter House Dune, was the cliffhanger. It was part two of a trilogy. And um, Brian found the notes, and he and Kevin worked up this essentially a two volume Dune 7. It was split into yeah, two. Finish. Um, I believe it's Hunters of Dune and Sandworms of Dune, I believe. And um, and so the publisher knew those were coming. And so they were like, let's do something grand for the original six. So, yeah, people are like, there was 30 voices in the original. How come you're the only voice on, on all the prequels and sequels? And then, you know, I get that a lot. Oh, I was going to ask that, of course. How? Are you? Oh, there's, there's your audio award. Hold yeah. it up. Good and proud. As always, yeah. Scott, you're absolutely right. 2008. And it's not, you know, but the not, only reason I, I thought that is because that was from the Audio Awards in Los Angeles. And I remember that they were here that year. Oh, was that the year you presented? Yes. There you go. Perfect. Congrats. I mean, Scott, as long as you brought it up, I was going to ask, and I was talking to Simon a bit beforehand, how did you kind of um, become the sort of sole Dune audiobook narrator outside of the main six? Because you do literally everything. Like from the sequels to the prequels to it all. I, I've actually um, um, 
we're putting out uh, um, Dreamer of Doom on audio um, next month. I so there's that one. Yeah, he wrote, uh, uh, Brian wrote a biography of his father. He really wanted oh, to tell the story okay. of his father and his mother because Beverly was a huge part. Um, uh, she nurtured that family and she contributed. She was a writer herself and she contributed a lot toward the storyline. So he, that's been a, a passion project of his for years. He wrote the bio about 20 years ago. It's never been on audio. And yeah, I even got to do that one. It's, it's been kind of crazy. Um, I, all I can tell you is I had just started working for this company, Books on Tape, and they would do co-pubs. They would do um, um, uh, co-publishing with one of the larger um, publishers like Macmillan or maybe Random House or Penguin. So Books on Tape, would, it was like a subcontracting kind of thing. They did all the studio work. Uh, they got paid for it by the publisher. So I found myself working for publishers that I had never met that I had never connected with personally. And that's what happened. They got in touch and said, we've got this book, um, Doom, the Butlerian Jihad, the first in the, uh, the Legends trilogy. And uh, they said, and I had just been in Dan's office and I said, hey, I know I'm new, but you know, what I'd really love is, is science fiction. It's my favorite genre. You know, if anything like that comes up, could you please think of me for it? I happened to be at the studio that day when um, Butlerian Jihad came in and and uh, Dan said, you know, I think books on tape would be smart if we put out Frank's original. We'll do this for Macmillan, Butlerian Jihad for Macmillan. And then you can do the original Doom for us, you know, back to back. And I, I don't know, uh, what I was thinking at the time, but, uh, you know, some young guy, brand new to the industry, um, still wet behind the ears, I made a demand. I said, these are my favorite books of all time. Um, one of my favorite series of all time. Um, I don't want to do them wrong. And there had been at least one uh, recording of it. Um, I won't mention the, the narrator is actually a friend of mine, but he got the pronunciations wildly wrong because he guessed at everything and i just said i can't can't do that i don't want to do it unless i could do it the way that frank would have wanted i said could sure. you put me in touch with with the author in, in this case you know with his family and brian we just we just hit it off and he appreciated the fact that i cared <clears throat> that much so we started this process um that's where the the Doom glossary came from. Uh, we started with the 500 words that were in the original volume. I think there's 499 or maybe 599. I've forgotten now. But he had recordings that his father had made, um, record album selections that he would do for, I believe it was Cadman Records. And we used those as a guide. He told me that, okay, this, you know, the word, uh, um, um, the Harkonnens come from this culture. Uh, the Fremen come from, you know, Arabic culture, Arabic descent. And each language has pronunciation rules, basically. Certain letters are pronounced a certain way. So even for the ones that Frank didn't say aloud, that we couldn't hear him say aloud, we knew how he, we knew the, the rules, right? And we could establish that. And we've used it ever since 
every single time for 20 years when a new book comes out, I go through it and I highlight anything that I don't recognize and I check it off on my database and then I write it out phonetically and it's, God, it's not perfect. Simon will tell you, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it's all just like, it's, it's my own phonetics, not like, you know, diacritical, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, uh, accurate, but uh, um, it's enough for me to go, okay, Mwadi, okay, got it. Uh, stress the, you know, the first and third syllable. When, when, when we did it, it was indispensable, your connections there, because I know we talked at the time about how uh, David Lynch's movie pretty much screwed yeah. up all the pronunciation, so that was another reason you wanted to get it right, and, and you helped it enormously, because it you know, couldn't have well, I, you know, I got, thank you. I appreciate that. I got to be honest. It was the first thing when I found out about it, I said, guys, please tell me you're not going to do it without this. And I said, I'll email it to you here. You can have it. Just, you know, it was six, seven years of research at that point. Um, that uh, five or 600 words is now, I think, 1900 with all the 21 or so volumes. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, Harkonnen, really? Frank served as he was the technical advisor for David Lynch and Lynch and told them it's Harkonnen. He liked Harkonnen better. And now fans still argue about it, you know, which is, which is accurate. I'm going to go with the author. You're doing a public service for uh, all the fans of Fuchs out there. Well, I, I don't, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I will tell you, I think the coolest thing I've ever heard in my career was, um, I, I sent this database to Brian um, because he wanted to be able to send it to the um, um, to the production company making the, the current movie. And he looked at it and he said, "This is this is a ton of work that you've done." He says, it "Sounds I like it." I want you to know that you are a pillar of the Dune universe. And I and I, I, I stopped and went, "Ooh." And he said, and by the way, if you remember, um, Usul, um, the name that the Fremen use for Paul, for Paul Moadi, Usul means pillar. And I said, I, and I got this chill and I said, Brian, I feel like you just dubbed me with a sword. This is just so cool. You know, for a science fiction geek, I mean, come on. You know, I, this, this was a dream come true, this, this gig. You, 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 you are the Quizettes Haderach of um, <laughs> the... Dune fandom. Okay, so, so 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 clearly you're coming out from a place of huge passion, Simon. How did you kind of find a way into Dune? Because if, if Brian's coming at it from you said a big sci-fi geek, you love Dune, favorite books ever. Did you have a connection to Dune beforehand, or did you have to kind of learn to love it? Oh God, no, <laughs> no. Um, I came across Dune first. It's the first big book I ever read. I grew up. Um, I was born in the mid fifties, so. Uh, I was about, uh, I think I picked it up as 12. I think the summer of 68 is when I'm, I recall reading it for the first time. Up to that point, I'd read the Pan Book of Horace Wells in England. There were to myself, you know, they're just short stories. And then I moved on to short uh, science fiction stories. because I love them. Lots of, you know, on the shelf, lots of you know, science fiction collections. And then for some reason that summer, <clears throat> I remember picking up Dune and I read that in three days. Damn. I specifically remember that the first I was like I finished that book and went, what did I just do? Because I'd lost. I remember. I can remember. I can picture myself sitting in the armchair. I remember the armchair I sat in. Like three days constantly, just reading this damn book. I loved it. 
loved it. So I was 68, and I went on to read the others as they came out or whatever. Uh, and then 20 years later, I was I mentioned doing audiobooks for charity, and it's the RNIB, Royal National Institute for the Blind's Talking Book Service, which I was a BBC newsreader, radio newsreader at the time, and I was offering some time. They've changed the title of it. I don't know what the company is called or the part of it is called. But um, around about 1986, seven, they wanted them done, and I spent a year, because I only went in one afternoon a week to, to do two or three, and I, I read them over a period of a year. And I tell you, Scott, when I got to the end of the sixth one, and he does this beautiful tribute to Beverly, who died, I think, around yeah. And I was in tears. It was one of the, I mean, we, as narrators, we get them every so often, where you read, and you get through the book, and you have to stop, and then you you to go back, and eventually you're able to get through it with just enough, um, you know, the sense of it without getting in the way of the words. But it was so hard to read. So that was, so 1968, about 1988 or 87, 88, and then, of course, 2007, I came back to it again. I'm wondering what's going to happen in 2027. But when, um, <laughs> when uh, Laura, uh, uh, Laurie, yes, Laura, at uh, Laura Wilson at Macmillan asked me about it. It's like I couldn't have wanted anything better. It's like you, Scott. You know, it's like, oh my. I, I remember you know, Simon and I have been friends for decades now, and um, we were in Seattle. Um, a colleague, a friend, and colleague of ours had passed away, and we went up for her memorial. And um, <clears throat> it was a book event going on up there. So we attended that, and the publisher said, Would you like to come to our? It was at a random house. Would you like to come to our party? And it was at the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. So Simon and his wife, Cynthia, and I were walking through the exhibits. And we get to the Dune exhibit. And I remember him saying, oh, I love this series so much. I envy you getting to do the, the prequels and the sequels. God, I would love to be able to work on this series. And I said, hey, never say never. I could absolutely <laughs> see that happening. And I swear <laughs> to God, it was like less than a year later. I get calls like, hey, Simon's going to do the narration. Everybody's going to be doing different parts, and I was like, "Sign me up!" I mean, it it means so much to both of us, and um, uh, and it's been nothing but a privilege. And Simon, I remember that tribute that you talked about. I just had to read a scene in uh, Dreamer of Doom. Um, Bev had inoperable cancer, um, and she survived for I think eleven years afterwards. And they were desperately trying to hold on long enough. For her to be able to see the film and she didn't and when the film debuted uh david lynch and uh and frank they arranged to do a special private screening to benefit the hospital where bev was being treated to benefit all of her caregivers and uh he got up in a tuxedo walked down to the front of the stage and just burst into tears and he said this is for bev that man loved his wife. And uh, I can actually, there are characters, specifically Duke Leto and the Lady Jessica. I see so much of Frank and Beverly in those two. And, you know, in many ways, uh, uh, Brian and, and Paul. So, yeah, it's been an honor to work on this series. That's so great to hear because, I mean, I got to say, I mean, for me, like, as a sci fi fantasy fan, like, Doom was always kind of, like, for me, uh, kind of like hard to get into, kind of like rem a little remote. And it's great to hear this kind of more personal angle to it that I think is a good way to kind of get into it. And 
this next question is, is pretty broad for both of you, but I feel like I should ask it. Like Dune right now is kind of having a bit of a revival. We have the new movie coming out, uh, Denis Villeneuve. I think that's how you say it. Um, what do you make of Dune's staying power? Like next to like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings is one of like the oldest sci-fi fantasy franchises that's like endured for decades and decades. Why do you think it's kind of kept its space in the public imagination the way it has? That's a big question. I know. Take a take a beat. I mean, I I say the world building is just exquisite. Yeah. I mean, just, it, it it draws you in. I mean, I know you mentioned it's sort of dense, dense and hard to get into. I, I, I don't know, maybe it's a quirk of mine. I remember the beginning of a Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. People say, oh, that's terribly difficult. Oh, it's really hard to get into that. I loved it. I, and, you know, I narrated that one, and it was like, yeah, it's great. And I, I think it never occurred to me that Dune was difficult to get into. At 13, I find it difficult to get into, and I don't know. I hope it's not a, a tendency of the modern world and the ADHD and all that sort of business. I mean, it's lasted, so I don't think it's like uh, so, uh, a lot of folk love it i mean it's lasted for decades and decades well i i'm i'm kind of perverse in that you know the thicker it is the better i'm gonna like it right the more the more dense it is um uh, i remember uh um jeff johns years ago speaking about the uh the dc universe and they said do you ever feel like all the decades of continuity is is a burden he said no those decades of continuity are a blessing they make me write better stories. And all of that work that Frank did, that was five years of research. It all stemmed from an article he was going to write about um, sand dunes in Oregon and how they learned to stop them from encroaching on, on, on the towns nearby. Um, and it's because it is so layered and textured, it's what I was fascinated by. When, when we recorded it uh, just as a solo read, I begged and I begged. I said, there's like a hundred pages of appendices at the end, you know, uh, planetary reports by Liet Kynes, you know, uh, talking about the ecology of Dune. I said, please let it. And we did, we recorded them. Um, and I think another reason for its staying power is not to get too highfalutin, but look, Shakespeare has hung around for hundreds of years because the grand epic scale of, of his stories. And I think Dune is very reminiscent of, of Shakespeare. Uh, it's grand themes. It's, you know, uh, deep, deep, you know, uh, plans within plans within plans, you know, political machinations, but also the broken relationship between father and son, right? It, it, to me, it speaks of Hamlet. That's a story about a guy who misses his father. And in many ways, you know, the uh, Paul's motivation is much the same. So that definitely has grand epic rises and falls in there. Absolutely. Are you looking forward to, um, do you have any thoughts, just I want to get this to, on the upcoming movie? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're not like, you know, consultants. Maybe you are, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I wish. Do you think this has um, a chance of being maybe a more accurate representation than David Lynch's movie, which I'm getting that you're not giant fans of? Oh my God. I, I was talking to a friend last night and it was, it was Scott and I was in Ray and uh, we were just laughing about how, uh, I'm sorry, it was awful. It's not uh, the story behind it because I actually went and had a look since we were talking to that, looked at the story behind it because th th it went through so many iterations before it was finally made. Yeah. And then 
David Lynch made this huge thing because I think he wanted to make two movies, but they wanted to get one. He ended up with three. They took it out of his hands and they cut it and they did the worst thing possible, which is do that voiceover stuff. You know, if you see a movie, you, your character starts sort of looking at the camera and start, I was thinking about this. Uh, you know, in, in, in the head, you know that the writers failed, the directors failed, they had to cut a whole bunch, so they got to squeeze it. Like the, like the original Blade Runner where, where they have the voiceover, we didn't know how long we had to live. Um, it's like, oh God, that's excruciating. And, and I mean, David Lynch went hell for leather for it. It was fantastic. And I have to say, when I saw it, it was like, because I'm a big fan of Doom. It was the mid 80s. It was the, the era of, of orange BMWs and shoulder pads and a head. <laughs> you know, yeah. it fitted in in a strange way. So I really enjoyed it, but history has not been kind to it. I mean, Lynch hates it. Well, yeah, he, he hates it because of what they did to it. It's like, to me, it's, it reminds me of Orson Welles. They took Magnificent Ambersons away from him. Uh, he had always said if he, they just left it alone, it would have been better than Kane. Um, and I think if we could have seen David Lynch's version, it'd be marvelous. He took his name off. It, it, it's now when you look at the, you know, the, the restored version, the one that came out on DVD 10, 15 years ago, directed by Alan Smithy, which is a pseudonym for any director in Hollywood who's gotten screwed. And it's it's uh, uh, it, it is it, it's a signpost to anybody in the industry saying the director hates this film. This isn't the director's work. And they, the, the version that he shot was four hours and 40 minutes long. And I spoke to a guy, I was a, I was a, a, a waiter at the time. Uh, the one summer I ever waited tables and a guy came in with a Dune production jacket. And I said, is it going to be good? And he said, well, I think it will be, but I'm worried. And I said, why? And he said, well, it's three hours and 20 minutes right now. And they think that's too long. So they're probably going to cut it more. It got down to like two hours and 20 minutes. If he thought it was too short at, at three hours and 20 minutes, I, you know, I, I think, I think it was doomed from the start. There's parts of it that I love. And then just really wacky things. My best friend and I, we still say the word Maudib, like in that, that's, it becomes like a word of death by the end of the film, you know, it's like, what, what? you know, it's like what, the power of his, of his voice kills people. What, where, where did this come from? The, the moment we were watching, uh, we were talking about it last night when uh, the whole, the, 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 they have that big scene where the, the space traveler guy comes through the doors and into the, the Harkonnen, whatever, mm -hmm. and where the emperor, whatever, and, and these guys in their big, plastic raincoats or whatever and one one guy just face plants into the side of the scenery and falls over and they just they kept the cut in it's, it's wonderful i do have to say uh it has had one lasting impact on me and that was with jose ferrer playing uh shadam and um um and it's so funny because they pronounce his name like four different ways in the <laughs> 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 not even consistent but he was he's one of my favorite actors of all time and so to this day every time i'm doing a scene uh shadam is in the duke of caledon and the whole time i'm doing i'm just i'm just doing jose ferrer uh, you know he was uh he was a very regal presence in that film and the duke of caledon out yesterday i think um on audible that's the newest one duke of caledon just came out so was that different at all from recording the other Dune things, like what are you bringing, if anything, different to this one? And when are you going to ask um, Simon Vance to 
help you make some of the spinoff ones? <laughs> um, uh, I will hold on to them with my cold, dead fingers, even at the end of my life. Um, uh, uh, the difference in this book um, is when we get with the House Trilogy, House, uh, um, uh, House Atreides, House Harkonnen, House um, Karina, um, you know, that's the prequel to Dune. And by the end of the trilogy, Paul is born. Well, we get to see Paul as a young man in this book. And frankly, it's what I had been hoping for, for all these years. Paul spent so little time in Dune with his father, Leda. And um, it was such a nourishing relationship. It meant so much to him. He taught him so much. Um, you know, I've, I've, I'm the guy who always wants to see, oh, can't we... Couldn't they have done a prequel and we can see Hamlet with King Hamlet, right? You know, um, I finally get that now. There's scenes where the two of them are spending quality time together. And again, knowing what I know about the story, uh, um, its origins and franchise, and, and Brian didn't get to spend much time with his parents. They died far too young. And I think in many ways, this was wish fulfillment for him as well. Um, um, imagining a world where Paul and Leda were together more often. Um, that's the biggest change for me. I mean, but in, in many ways, it's, you know, the political machinations, all of that is still in place. Harkonnens still suck. Uh, the Atreides are noble. And, uh, you know, much, uh, uh, much has changed, but much stays the same. Very, very cool. And Dune the Duke of Caledon is out now, available wherever books and books are sold. Okay, I'll wrap it up, guys. I don't take too, too much of your time, but um, I had to ask you, Simon, about um, Fire and Blood, because Game of Thrones is still a pretty big deal in terms of fans who are looking for it, looking forward to the next thing. We get a lot of uh, readers who are interested in it. You narrated Fire and Blood, George R. R. Martin's kind of history of the Targaryen dynasty before Game of Thrones began. Or Song of Ice and Fire. How did that come about, and what was your experience like? Um, well, uh, I uh, I do a lot of fantasy. It's this, I love science fiction too, but I seem to have ended up. You know, we don't always do everything we love, and uh, I tend to get mostly fantasy. I, I, but I love. I also love fantasy. I'm now again Lord of the Rings. I've still got my original copy of that from '71. Uh, but um, so I got into Game of Thrones. I hadn't read the previous the books, but. Uh, the series I was loving it. It was great fun. And then I heard that he was producing this history of the Targaryens, um, and so I used a connection that I had through uh, someone I thought might bump into George Martin at a conference. It was actually Neil Gaiman, and I sent him an email. I said, "Hey Neil, if you happen to see George at any of these things, can you just mention I'm interested?" Um, and he actually said, "Oh, I'll, I'll I'll forward an email from you." So I sent an email to you. To George through Neil saying, Hi, George, love your work. <laughs> uh, I'd love to do something, you know. So um, uh, then I got a phone call from, actually, it was Laura Wilson, who was at, still at Macmillan at the time, who, who was instrumental in us doing Dune. She was like, Simon, what did you do? I just had a call from George Martin. He wants you to narrate Fire and Blood. So it, whatever it was, it worked. Neil <laughs> stuff me and, and George was interested. Um, so that was a, I was such a thrill. 
um, such as the cool. few occasions when I have actually had to go into the studios at Penguin Random House. They have sort of with security and with the, with the text. And oh, you were there. Yeah, I was there. And yes. which is the craziest thing, because uh, when um, Roy Dottrice was narrating the first what, five books, I happened to be recording something else every single time he was there recording something. Yeah, and so I would hear about this series and I would hear him through the walls or through the door, you know, doing his voice for Tyrion Lannister. Or, or my favorite voice he ever did was the uh, uh, the young king in the in the area who was like, yeah, I want to see the little man fly, you know. <laughs> um, and it got to be really kind of weird because seriously, it was every book over a period of about 10 years. And then um, Roy had gone to uh, uh, had gone to London and sadly never got to see him again. But when this came out, uh, I thought, well, there's the end of that streak. And then I go into Penguin Random House and he's there one of the few times that he actually comes into the studio. And I'm like, it's it's the craziest timing in the world. But hey, I'll take it because it's a brilliant series. And he's not kidding about security. Um, I've been there when they were doing the Harry Potter books. I've been in their warehouse when they had a pallet full of um, um, uh, Game of Thrones books. And they are wrapped up in tight security. There was this one pallet and it had four armed guards at each, one, at each corner. Armed guards? Armed guards. Wow. So that employees can't go in and lift one and bring it home. It's, it's crazy. Well, look, they're a, they're a license to print money. So I can understand the, uh, you know, keep the secret stuff. Yeah. That's pretty insane. I mean, I, it was, the show was famous for having all these, um, security measures and flying drones and scripts and self-destruct, but I didn't, I, I it makes perfect sense that they're pretty the books the same way, but it's just kind of a funny image I'm getting of like armed guards around a pallet of books. <laughs> I know it, it was a bit in Congress when I saw it. Okay, on we go. All right, guys. Well, is there any other project that you're working on now? I mean, I know that we're here to talk about Dune, sci-fi fantasy, but anything else you got coming up that you want people to know about? Um, I've I've got a few things coming up, and I don't know if I should mention um, I, some some stuff I'm interested. Not not in the fantasy worlds. I'm not sure. Uh, but there's a but, but yeah, I've got some uh, book coming up that I've got to do a lot of work on next week. I'm actually going to go back. I'm doing a book, a, a sort of a, a vanity project, um, which is one I saw it in a secondhand bookshop about a year ago and bought it. And then I spoke to a friend of mine who has a, an independent company, spoken uh, outside of Audible. And um, so I'm, it's the um, it's the Bram Stoker uh, life Henry Irving. He he was a very good friend of Henry Irving's, the actor from the 19th century. And it's, uh, wrote this two volume book. Um, and, uh, I just, I, I've had it on my shelf and I've, I've, I've had it sort of, I'll do it this week and then something else comes in. I'll do it this week because I'm not doing it for a publisher. I'm not paid for it in the moment. And it's always that I've got to find time when I can do it. So I think right now, uh, I've got time to do that. So I'm, I'm probably uh, going to start that, uh, tomorrow, I think, and next week or so. Very cool. I, uh, I want to hear about it when that comes out, because I definitely want to check that out. Um, uh, I, as I mentioned earlier, Dreamer of Dune, um, I got the rights to that one um, because it's, it was his passion project, you know, and I, I, I just love the fact that he gets to tell his parents' story. That's going to be coming out, I believe, um, 
at Thanksgiving. Uh, but actually, just yesterday, I started. God, and uh, just so thrilled, I got picked by the um, approved by uh, Raymond Chandler's estate. Um, we're re-recording all of the Philip Marlowe novels. So yesterday, I just got to uh, start the big sleep and. God, he's some of the best lines of all time. There's, it's so hard boiled. Um, I don't like drunks in the first place. In the second place, I don't like him getting drunk in my place. And in the third place, I didn't like him in the first place. <laughs> yeah, I can't be jealous. I can't be envious of that because I would never be asked to do Raymond Chandler. So it's, it's a, we're good friends. We may not be good friends if I had an American accent and could do Philip Marlowe, but um, I'm very happy to you, Scott. That's excellent. Thank you. It was. Uh, uh, well, Suzanne can tell you, I, 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 God, I was jumping up in the air. I was like a little kid when I got the news. So it's very, very cool. It's the coolest thing. Simon and I can both tell you this. Uh, it's a great job. Essentially, we're getting paid to be well read. And come on, for 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 book nerds like us, that does sound kind of like the dream for a lot of nerds out there. I, I will admit. <laughs> Yeah. I, was gonna, I was only going to throw in the, the book that must be forthcoming at some point. Having done volume one of the history of the Targaryens today, uh, I may get to do volume two. However, given George Martin's rate of output, it may be a decade or two before we get there. I mean, I'll, I'll just put it out there. It's even possible they could ask you to do The Winds of Winter, right? If and when that ever comes out. It's not impossible, right? It's not impossible. I couldn't possibly comment. Nobody has reached out to me yet. Uh, <laughs> I'll have a word with Neil, who might have a word with George, who might have a word with, yeah, well, I know. Exactly. Get that game and email train going again. I was doing the Hillary Mantel books, but they went to the last one, and it, I did so well in the second one. The last one went to Ben Miles, who's a famous actor who's played Thomas More in the Wolf, uh, you know, the, whatever, the other ones that bring up the bodies and stuff, the TV series. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite open to the fact that they will get a name actor who has experience doing audiobooks to do it. Because, just you know, George Martin could pick anybody to do the next uh, game book. And I'm, so, you, you know, you cannot, um, you know, bet the house on something like that. It could change. Oh, no, you wouldn't want to bet it. But, I mean, I don't think that Martin kind of, like, goes his own way when it comes to things like this. I mean, I'm not sure Roy Dotrice was, like, you know, he's, he wasn't Kevin Costner or anything. He was, like, someone that Martin wanted specifically. They had worked together on um, uh, Beauty and the Beast when he was a staff writer and they became very good friends. So yeah, he just knew this is who he wanted. And I'll, I'll, I'll cross my fingers. Yeah, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk again when it comes back and you get the job. So we'll just put it out in the universe. Well, thanks for coming by, guys. It's a lot of fun and um, good luck on your next couple thousand audiobooks. <laughs> thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you yeah. so much. This podcast is brought to you by Fansighted. Join our community of over 300 sites from sports to pop culture and everything in between. 